look around me and find No one else can satisfy this heart of mine I look around me and see No one else gives me the love I need And so I close my eyes and dream away simply wondering who who can turn my tears into a smile who can turn each wrong into a right who can take my darkest nights and turn them into blue Lord, it's you, only you, only you. Lord, only you. When in the valley so low, when the clouds hang above my heart, and on each mountain top, no one else has been there from the start. And so I close my eyes and dream away, simply wondering who can turn my tears into a smile who can turn each wrong into a right who can take my darkest skies and turn them into blue lord it's you only you only you lord only Your love for me would go That you would give your life To capture my runaway soul To save me and make me your own And at that moment tears into a smile who can turn each wrong into a right who can take my darkest skies and turn them into blue Lord it's you only you only you Lord only I was lost, but now you found me Through your loving arms around me There's not a lot that I know is true But when it comes to me, there's only you Yeah, yeah, there's only Father, we thank you for that truth. We can search the world over and come to that same conclusion. Only Christ can satisfy. No one else can fill us. No one else can inspire us. No one else can lift us up when we're down, be our comfort. No one else can be our encouragement and our strength and courage 
through every storm of life, through everything we're going through. Help us to tune out all of the noise and, and all of the voices around us and to focus on your still small voice. Visit with us now, Father, as we study your word. Give us a practical lesson that we can take with us and carry in our hearts and minds when we leave here today. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You know, I love the month of September. And you might ask, well, why? Is it the changing colors of the trees? No, 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 not that so much. Is it the um, cooling of the weather? No, no, I love, I love summer. I'm a, I'm a summer fan. Is it the uh, new school season? Fresh beginnings, a new start? No, no. Is it the scriptural significance of the feasts, Rosh Hashanah? Nope. Much more shallow than that. It's the start of the new NFL football season. Amen? I see the tear in your eye, Brother Matt. So being that that is the case, I thought it's only apropos that I start with a football story. And it's a story that took place 33 years ago. I was 10 years old, and I'll never forget it. Because it broke my heart because it involved my favorite team, the San Diego Chargers. And Dave, if you're a fan of the Chargers, there are a lot of heartbreaking uh, stories, aren't there? So here we are in 1982, and this was a high-flying offense, Air Coryell record-breaking offense led by star quarterback Dan Fouts. And they had just finished winning what was arguably the greatest NFL playoff game in history in Miami. It was hot and humid Miami in the Orange Bowl. And they won in a, in a double overtime game. And they found themselves now the heavy favorites in the AFC Championship game against the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, you remember this, Vince. They were such favorites to win that a lot of NFL pundits and, and analysts started making Super Bowl plans. You know, the winner goes on to the Super Bowl, assuming that this prolific offense, high-flying chargers would represent their conference. Well, practice couldn't have gone smoother that week. They studied the playbook. They knew their opponent. They had played them before that season. And uh, everything uh, was clicking. Everyone was relaxed. They'd healed up from, from their injuries. And they were ready. And when the day arrived, the weather was historic. The coldest day ever on record in Ohio, 59 below zero wind chill. The Ohio River froze over. The football field was a solid, frozen slab of ice. And the NFL held emergency meetings to determine if the game should go on or not. And when they looked at the forecast, it didn't, didn't look any better in the next few days, so they said, let's play on. It'll go, go as scheduled. And the Sunshine Boys from San Diego were shell-shocked. They had to put on so many layers of clothing, they could barely move. Quarterback Dan Fouts, who would develop permanent frostbite in his fingers and toes during the game, could barely grip the ball to throw it. And the outcome became a foregone conclusion the other way. 27-7, the Bengals won. And interviewed afterwards in the, in the locker room, several Chargers said the same thing. Uh, look, we were prepared. We were prepared for, for the Bengals. We, we knew what to expect there, but we weren't prepared for the elements. We, we, we weren't prepared for the cold. We knew our opponents well, but we faced an unexpected foe. The enemy we thought we were going to be fighting that day turned out to be something completely different in reality. It was a hidden enemy, an unexpected foe, an unexpected enemy. It's a scary proposition. We don't like that. In our human nature, we don't like the unknown, the unexpected, the hidden. We want to know exactly what we're up against. We want a well-defined entity, right? But so often what, what we're up against isn't the biggest threat we're facing. You know, whenever I, I let my kids choose a Bible story for us to read, they love to choose David and Goliath. And I've preached on David before and how God used all the, the circumstances in his life to lead him up to his one moment in time. But when I was uh, rereading the story to them, 
for the umpteenth time recently, a, a new question hit me. And it struck me, and the question was this, who was David fighting that day? What was his greatest enemy? And I hear what you're saying, oh, poor guy, you know, I think the three kids in Sleepless Lights have, have finally gotten to him. The memory is fading, you know. Of course, it's the menacing nine-foot-plus giant standing in the battlefield hurling death threats to whoever came up against him. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, Goliath was a monster problem, literally. But Goliath wasn't the real battle David faced that day. It wasn't David's biggest problem, even. You see, Goliath was a known quantity. He was a known entity. You looked at him and you knew exactly what to expect. But there were unexpected enemies that day that David faced that posed a far greater threat to his success. And those same hidden enemies that he overcame on that day, they're the same ones that we face today. And we find ourselves up against them. You see, we all have Goliaths. We all have giants standing in our way. We all have Goliath problems. We all have trials, and, and we have to face our giants, whatever they may be, broken relationships, financial woes, job issues, health concerns. And oftentimes, we're so focused on, on the object of our trial that, that we don't look at this, the, the unexpected enemies that sneak up on us. You see, is, is that broken relationship really the battle, or is it a matter of our pride? Is that unmanageable bill really the enemy, or is it our lack of faith in God? We can see the problem ahead of us, but we fail to focus on the unexpected enemies that really lead to our defeat. I want us to look today at those unexpected enemies. We're, we're going to trace David's steps that day up to the battlefield. He faced those same unexpected enemies before he ever battled Goliath. And his victory over each one of them gives us a blueprint for how to battle them and how to defeat them and how to be victorious in God. So turn with me to our text, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can look up at the video screens. We're going to start reading in verse 2. And this is at a time when the Philistines had gathered their forces for war and assembled in Judah. 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and, and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's nine foot six. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's over 150 pounds of armor. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 19 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. 
Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with a keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. And let's stop there for a moment. And this brings us to David's first enemy, fear. He walks into the camp. He hears the giant mocking and, and threatening them. And when he looks around at Israel's finest, they're fleeing in fear. H have you ever been in a, in a place of peace and you're feeling pretty good about things and then you talk to people around you and you hear about all the things you should be afraid of, all, all the things that surely are going to be the end of us. What happens? You, you start believing it. You start thinking, oh my, I should be afraid of that because everyone else around me is. I should worry about this because everyone else is. It's called transference, right? We transfer the fears of the masses upon ourselves. Now, fear is the most crippling of emotions whether it's conceived in your own mind or borrowed from those around you, fear is destructive. Fear cripples. Fear, it damages. Fear destroys. Fear can be very justified. A giant, that giant was very real. His armor was very real. His weapons were very real. His threats were very real. Was there a cause for fear? Absolutely. We all have fears. The measure of a Christian, however, is how far do we let that fear go? Do we have fears around us in the world today? We sure do. ISIS, terrorism, political unrest, environmental decay. How about closer to home? Drought, unemployment, job security, illness, health, school grades, Mortgage payments, financial woes. How about the future and, and our children and their futures? How about the what-ifs? If we left that fear unchecked, what would happen? We'd curl up in the, in the fetal position and never leave our beds in the morning. <laughs> On that Judean field, had fear won the day, there wouldn't have been a battle that day. There would have eventually been a full retreat and surrender. A nation would have been defeated and history would have been changed. But fear didn't win. No thanks to that Israelite army. They cowered in fear because their focus was on a giant. David's focus was on the God who made the giant. Did David have fear? Probably. Did David have the right to fear? Absolutely. Did David let fear consume him? No. He heard the giant. He saw the giant. He saw the fear around him and all the soldiers, and he quickly turned his focus to his God. Amen. The God who walked with him. The God who was in control. Fear simply became David's opportunity for faith. It's always like that, isn't it? Fear becomes our springboard to great faith. Max Lucado said it so well. He said, Great acts of faith are seldom born out of calm calculation. It wasn't logic that caused Moses to raise his staff on the bank of the Red Sea. It wasn't medical research that convinced Naaman to dip seven times in the river. It wasn't common sense that caused Paul to abandon the law and embrace grace. And it wasn't a confident committee that prayed in a small room in Jerusalem for Peter's release from prison. It was a fearful, 
desperate band of backed-into-a-corner believers. It was a church with no options, a congregation of have-nots pleading for help, and never were they stronger. At the beginning of every act of faith, there is often a seed of fear. It's true. Fear becomes our springboard to faith if and only if we move our focus off of the object of our fear and onto God. I heard a great quote recently, and Jenny sang a song last month about it that said, don't tell God how big your mountain is. Tell your mountain how big your God is. He's in control. God is in control. Dean preached a series on that last month. He knows what he's doing. No matter how bad things look around us, trust him. He knows what he's doing. He has plans and is orchestrating plans in our lives that we can't imagine. We trust him even when we don't see because we trust his heart. We trust his character. We trust his goodness. If you focus on him, there's no room for fear. He knows what he's doing. And that mountain, that storm, that giant will work together for your good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, would David have won the hearts of his people and become the king that God wanted him to be if it weren't for Goliath? Goliath played an important role, and I don't believe he would have been. It took a giant to make a king. Sometimes it takes a mountain. It takes a storm. It takes a trial, a failure, a loss, a denial, a sacrifice, a a gut-wrenching pain to turn us into the Christians and the men and women of God that he wants us to be. Don't fear the process because we know who's designed it. We know who's in control of it. David's greatest threat that day was giving in to the fear and losing out on who and what God wanted him to be. Thankfully, David looked away from his fear and his brother's fears and his king's fears and all the army's fears, and he put his eyes right back on God. And fear is eradicated. The first enemy he faced. Let's keep reading now. Verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He he comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, wait, wait, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? David asked. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. And this brings us to David's second unexpected enemy, criticism. Look, all David did was obey his father and bring lunch to his brothers, and he's repaid with that criticism. Have you ever been repaid good for, or been repaid evil for good? Get in line, friend. Why did you come down here? Who did you leave the sheep with? I know how conceited you are. I know how wicked your heart is. You only came down to watch the battle. So let me get this straight. David brings lunch to his brothers, and Eliab publicly responds with, I'm going to criticize your work ethic. I'm going to criticize your morals. I'm going to question your motives, and I'm going to judge your character. 
Wow, thanks, big brother. Have a good lunch. You're welcome. Whew, Eliab was nothing more that day than a calculated tool of the devil. See, Satan knew what was about to happen. David's ascension to king, well, David would be in the line, in the lineage of Christ. Christ, Jesus, was a descendant of David. And, and, and if, if Satan could do anything to stop David's ascension to king, well, he would. And he tried everything in his power. And he used whoever would let him to try and stop that ascension. Well, who was Eliab and what do we know about him? Well, he was David's oldest brother, Jesse's firstborn. And that's important to know because when Samuel came looking for God's choice for a king a few chapters back, that honor should have gone to Eliab, Jesse's eldest. But it didn't because his heart wasn't pure. He didn't have the heart that God was looking for to be king of his people. David did. David had the heart that God wanted. And yet, when Eliab attacked David's character, what did he choose to judge? David's heart. I know how wicked your heart is. Satan used Eliab's very point of jealousy to attack David. Have you ever been criticized and attacked for your Christianity, for your stands, for your convictions, for doing good, for being pure, for being separated? Always remember why. Those that the devil uses to attack, they're jealous of the very attributes that they slander. Notice your weaknesses are never under fire. Eliab didn't judge David's age or, or immaturity. Why? Because the, the, those tools of the devil are never jealous of your failings. It's your strengths they desire. David's strength was his heart. And that's the exact object for which he was criticized and slandered. So here's David getting mentally prepared to take on this giant. And instead of being able to focus on the task at hand, he's slapped in the face with criticism. Now, it's very true there are two kinds of criticism. There's constructive criticism. Hey, David, if, if you're even thinking about going out there to take on the giant, don't go without a plan. You need, you need a, a battle plan. It's good advice. Thanks, Eliab. We should always have an open mind to constructive criticism that can help us. This was not constructive criticism. This was vengeful, hateful slander that was neither deserved nor warranted. And what did David do? He simply asked, what have I done? Can I, can, can't I even speak? And in verse 30, we read, he then turned away to someone else. Wait, 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 wait. Did, didn't he publicly address and answer every accusation to defend his honor? No. He could have. David could have answered every one of Eliab's statements. Jesse, David's father, had sent David. Jesse had greater authority in the family than Eliab. David had come to provide food for Eliab and his brothers, who were soldiers, and that was a necessary and important task. The family had paid someone to look after the sheep while David was away. He didn't leave the sheep in peril. Every criticism could have easily been rebutted, but David chose not to do that. He simply walked away. He turned away and ignored Eliab. And he must have passed on this wisdom to his son Solomon, who would later write in Proverbs 23.9, Do not speak to fools, for they will scorn your prudent words. And again in Proverbs 26.4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. It wouldn't have helped. It wouldn't have helped for David to even address the criticism. Would Eliab have changed his mind and publicly apologized? Proverbs 18.2 tells us, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Eliab wasn't interested in hearing the truth. He just wanted to air his words in order to cast David in, in a negative light. Jealousy does that. Hatred does that. 
And so what did David do with criticism? The second enemy he faced that day. Shook it off, brushed it off, and kept going. Was it easy? No. Did it hurt? Yes, especially from his own brother. But did God want to develop a thick-skinned king, knowing the trials David would have to later go through with Saul and later with his own son Absalom? Yes. See, God sometimes allows these injustices, these criticisms, as unjust and unfair as they are, to build us into thick-skinned Christians so we can take more, so we can put up with more, so that we can be used in a greater way, so that it becomes not about us and our feelings and our rights, but all about His kingdom and His work. You can't survive long as a believer in this world, in this society, without developing a thick skin. Everywhere we turn, especially lately, we're mocked. Our beliefs, our principles, our morals, our convictions, our Bible, our foundation, our God, mocked. Mocked at every turn, criticized by every group that wants to push its own agenda. Do we cower? Do we run away and hide? Do we give up? No. No, if we're, if we're to survive and thrive as Christians in this environment, we have to develop thick skins. We have to cling to our beliefs, let them say what they want, and let the criticism roll off our backs. So not only did David first have to overcome fear around and in him, he then had to overcome the criticism hurled at him. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. I, your servant, David, I'll go and fight him. Saul replied, oh, You're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Let's stop there. So after overcoming fear and criticism, David's now brought to King Saul. And David is as sure and positive as he can be. Let no one lose heart on account of this heathen giant. Your humble servant will go out and fight him. I've got this. Don't worry, Saul. God will not be mocked. David is ready. He's upbeat. He's positive. And he's confident that his cause is just and his God is greater than any enemy. And what happens? Saul applies large pin to said bubble. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble, David, but it's not going to happen. You're too young. You're too small. You're too inexperienced. Your enemy is too great, too strong, too big, too experienced. How discouraging. You're the king you pledge your allegiance and service to tells you you can't win. You won't win. Don't, don't even try. David is faced with his third enemy. They're brothers. Doubt and discouragement. Everywhere one goes, the other follows. First, doubt knocks on your door, and if you let him in, know that his brother is showing up with all his bags two days later. Discouragement. We start doubting. We start listening to the naysayers. Right? And what happens? Discouragement sets in. Doesn't it? It's so easy to get discouraged when words or thoughts hit you and, and burst your bubble. You've known people who've played Saul in your life, haven't you? Hey, you, you won't find a spouse unless you date. You've you got to put yourself out there. I don't think you're ready to be a parent. I don't agree with how you're raising your kids. You can't do the job. You can't win. You can't overcome this sin. You can't. You won't. You're unable to. You know what? You're not enough. Don't doubt. Don't let those words turn your thoughts, and don't let those thoughts turn your heart. These are not words from God. We have a God of assurance and encouragement. We have a God who says, 
Yes, you can, because I can. Yes, you will, because I will. Just sit back and watch. (coughs) Follow David's lead. What did he do with a doubt and discouragement? He remembered. He remembered what God had done for him in the past. Let's read verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion And the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. The God who helped me before will help me now. If there's one statement that comes to mind in times of trial, storm, crisis, this should be it. The God who rescued me before will rescue me now. Bless you. Thank you. The God who delivered me before will deliver me now. David comforted Saul and he comforted his own heart with the remembrance of what God has done with the remembrance of the memorials in his life, those places where God met him and was his enough, was his deliverer. Discouragement doesn't last if we remember what God has already done. Amen? Doubt can't take hold when we remember his presence in our lives. You know, a great story goes like this. It was announced that the devil was going out of business. Hallelujah. Hallelujah and would offer all his tools for sale to whoever would pay the price. The night of the sale, they were all attractively displayed, and a bad-looking lot they were. Malice, hatred, envy, jealousy, sensuality, deceit, and all the other implements of evil were spread out, each marked with its price. And apart from the rest, laid a harmless-looking wedge-shaped tool, much worn, (coughs) excuse me, and priced higher than any of the others. Someone asked the devil, what is that? That's discouragement, was the reply. Why do you have it priced so high? Because, replied Satan, it's more useful to me than any of the others. I can pry open and get inside a man's consciousness with that when I could not get near him with any of the other tools. And when once inside, I can use him in whatever way suits me best. It's, it's so much worn because I use it with nearly everybody, as very few people yet know it belongs to me. It hardly need be added that the devil's price for discouragement was so high that it was never sold. He's still using it. Always remember where discouragement comes from and how to overcome it. Do what David did and remember. Remember what God has already brought you through. Is what you're facing now bigger than what he's already done? David overcame fear, criticism, doubt, and discouragement. Let's keep reading. Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. So here we go. After overcoming fear and criticism, doubt and discouragement, David is next faced with compromise. All right, David, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it our way. You're going to need armor and weapons that you can rely and depend upon. Put your trust in this strong armor. 
Here, wear this helmet to protect you. How typical of the world is that? Fine, you can be a Christian, but do it in this, in this socially acceptable box of compromise that we've outlined. Make sure your Christianity is based on tolerance and acceptance. Change your beliefs to fit the day. The world has moved on. You know what? Your beliefs should too. Let, let's just ignore the controversial parts of the Bible, the parts that are uncomfortable. Let's just champion tolerance and grace and love. Love wins. What a load of garbage. Here, David, forget, forget how you fought and defeated those lions and bears before. Forget who your help came from. You need new weapons. You need a new strategy. You're in my army now. Take on our rules and our principles. We wear armor and carry swords. That's how it's done here. Really, Saul? How's that armor working out for all the trembling soldiers refusing to fight? Verse 39. David fastened on his sword over the tunic, and he tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. I'm sure it was tempting, you know, wearing the king's own armor. It looked so sturdy and gleaming. and That armor felt so official and protective. That sword was so sharp, it looked like it could do some real damage. But it wasn't God's way. It was the world's way. David did what we should all strive to do when faced with the temptation of compromise. Take it off and throw it away. We don't need this world. We don't follow its ways or conventions or principles. We serve a higher God. We follow higher ways and we answer to a higher call. Oh, come on. Life is made up of compromises. In this day and age, shouldn't we compromise a bit of our biblical hard lines to, to fit the times? You know, we want to be attractive. We want Christianity to be attractive to people. Shouldn't we work within the circumstances of, of what we're going through? A very wise man, A.W. Tozer, once wrote, The blessing of God is promised to the peacemaker, but peace should never be achieved at the cost of scriptural compromise. The religious negotiator had better watch his step. Darkness and light can never be brought together to talk. Some things are not negotiable. May we always remember this. In the face of compromise, when our convictions, our principles, our beliefs are on the line, some things are not negotiable. Our principles are not negotiable. Our convictions are not negotiable. May we always remember this. And stay true to what we believe. Stray, stay true to what God teaches us to do. David overcame fear, criticism, doubt, discouragement, and compromise. Whew! You didn't know what a battle he had before he even fought Goliath. And finally we read in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. You know, the devil never gives up. He keeps feeding the fear, feeding the doubt. But you know what? David had already come, overcome that. He overcame the fear simply by stepping out onto the battlefield. He overcame the doubt and the discouragement and the criticism that came his way from the king and from his very own brother. The battle had already been won. It was over in David's mind and heart. And in verse 45, we see that. We see the realization of it. David said to the Philistine, you come against me 
with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you, all of you, into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed. Yeah, that's worth clapping for, isn't it? So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. <laughs> Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword. Remember, David didn't come with a sword. He drew it from its sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. After overcoming fear, criticism, doubt, discouragement, and compromise, you know what? Goliath was no match for David. It wasn't even close. The battle against Goliath was one of Scripture's most anticlimactic battles. David's real battle had been won before he ever stepped onto that battlefield. Everyone that day thought that David battled and defeated a giant, but it was much more than that. David battled and defeated fear, his own fear, and the fear of others around him. He kept his eyes on his deliverer and not the obstacle in front of him. Amen. David battled and defeated criticism. He was thick-skinned enough to ignore the lies, the hatred, and the slander hurled at him. David battled and defeated doubt and discouragement. Not even the king's doubts about David's capabilities and qualifications could dampen his spirit and his resolve. He remembered he remembered what God had already brought him through. David battled and defeated the temptation of compromise. He stayed true to his principles and said no to the compromise offered to him. And finally, yeah, as a footnote, David killed Goliath. Look, I don't know what your situation is today. You may be facing your own giant. And your eyes and your mind and your thoughts are so fixated on the object of your trial that you don't realize there are unexpected enemies at play. Those hidden enemies around you can take you down far more quickly than that giant. Those are the more dangerous enemies. See, the reality is that giant isn't your crisis. That's the distraction that seeks to consume you so that far more dangerous enemies can destroy you. Those are the tactics the devil uses. While you're busy worrying about the giant, fear takes over, criticism consumes you, doubt and discouragement bring you down, and then compromise is easily welcomed. You lose before the battle ever gets started. Don't let it happen, friend. Amen. Be vigilant, be alert, be prepared. Stay close to God. Stay in His Word. Stay connected to His people. Don't lose sight of the daily spiritual battles in your life because you're consumed with an earthly Goliath. Don't let fear cripple you. Don't let criticism get you down. Don't let discouragement take hold of your heart. And don't let compromise slither its way into your walk. Those hidden enemies still attack us today, don't they? They're powerful. They're powerful weapons the devil uses to defeat us before we even begin to fight. Don't let them win. Don't let them in. Always remember, whatever hidden enemies come your way, God is bigger than they are. Keep your focus on him. Let your mind be consumed with your deliverer. 
not with a thing from which you need deliverance. Keep your eyes on him. Keep his word in your heart and keep his past faithfulness in mind. And always remember, God is bigger. God is bigger than your Goliath. God is bigger than your past. God is bigger than your pain. He's bigger than your anger. He's bigger than your scars. God is bigger than your fear. He's bigger than your discouragement, doubt, depression. God is bigger than anything you're facing today. Remember that, and like David, you'll be walking onto the battlefield already having won. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that the battle belongs to you. In your more than capable hands, we place our giants today. Whatever trial, whatever obstacle, whatever crisis has touched our lives, we bring it before you. In you and only you can we find victory. Give us strength now, Father, to guard our minds and hearts from the unexpected hidden enemies that seek to destroy us. Strengthen us to withstand the fear that can grip us, the criticism that comes our way, the doubt and discouragement that can so easily bring us down, and the temptation of compromise this world so willingly offers. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Father. Help us like David did to overcome these unexpected enemies. And with our focus on you, Lord, everything changes. The tide is turned. Fear cannot take hold. Criticism can be ignored. Doubt and discouragement find no foothold in our hearts. Compromise is easily rejected. And giants still fall. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father. With all our love and gratitude, we pray in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.